You're listening to The Startup Hats, Master the Many Roles of the Entrepreneur by David Gardner. David is a seven-time successful startup entrepreneur who now spends his time advising and investing in early-stage companies. Working with startups ranging from software to breweries, David provides first-hand knowledge of what founders need to know to be successful, how to think critically, master time management, and avoid disastrous mistakes. In this podcast series, you'll learn about the 11 hats startup founders need to wear effectively. The entrepreneur hat, the navigator's hat, the banker's hat, the construction hat, the marketer's hat, the sales hat, the recruiter's hat, the manager's hat, the negotiator's hat, the sales manager's hat, and the leader's hat. To run a successful startup, you'll need to wear all of these hats, no matter how heavy they may be, so that one day the company will grow to the point where you can remove the hats one by one and give them to the team you've selected to build upon your foundation. Introduction With degrees in philosophy and ancient languages, I have often said that the best thing my higher education did was to provide me with absolutely no marketable skills. I don't say this in jest. The reality is that had I graduated with a marketable degree, the odds are that I would have immediately gotten a job, gotten a mortgage, and lived out the rest of my days without ever considering starting my own ventures. Since no one would hire me, I stumbled into entrepreneurship simply as a means to service a mountain of student loan debt. Over the last 25 years, I've had the privilege and sometimes heartache of founding or co-founding multiple technology companies. I've also invested in and advised dozens of other startups, ranging from enterprise software platforms to breweries. I've made plenty of mistakes, arrogantly blown a couple of potentially huge exits, and occasionally sold at just the right time. I was fortunate enough to have seven of my own startups successfully acquired in a row. The largest sold for $100 million in cash, and the briefest lasted only 11 months before being acquired for $12 million. Don't worry, this is not going to be about me. It's really about you and your venture. The last thing we need is another academic textbook or one of those autobostographies where each chapter begins with some variation on, and then my brilliance was further demonstrated by, in fact, I don't think I'm even a good role model. I did almost everything wrong for way too long before eventually figuring it out, always learning my lessons the hard way. To this day, I have no excuse for the generously given wisdom that languished at my doorstep. So why should you listen to me? Most of you that are arrogant enough to think that you know enough to defy the odds and build your own successful venture from the ground up are probably a lot like I was in those early days. You should listen to me not because I'm great or wise, but because I vividly remember every self-discovered truth and painful lesson endured. You should listen to me because I have a good memory, I'm honest, and I sincerely want to see every entrepreneur succeed. You should listen to me because, unfortunately, experience gives you the test and then the lesson. This book isn't about me, but it would be helpful for you to know a little something about how I became an entrepreneur. Being the first person to obtain a degree from either side of my family, I received little guidance concerning majors or career options when I headed off to college. I assumed that everyone studied whatever subjects they found most interesting, 
without a thought to its marketability or income potential. For me, this was history, ancient languages, and philosophy. I had no money saved for college, but thankfully, student loans were readily available. I finished my undergraduate in three years by taking heavy class loads that always exceeded 20 credit hours per semester while working nearly full-time. This was simply a matter of economics for me. In those days, full-time students paid the same amount regardless of whether they took 12 credit hours or 20. So why not take 20 to save the cost of a full year of college? In hindsight, although this was good economics, I forfeited much of the college experience never to be relived. This was my first lesson in how things can look great in theory, but not play out so well in practice. After graduating, I started a Master's of Divinity program at Southeastern Seminary and completely by accident discovered a love for computers. I wanted to write my thesis in ancient Greek, but there was a requirement that it be typed. Typewriters for dead language are an obvious short supply, but I had heard of something called a word processor that might enable me to accomplish this task. I took advantage of a special sale going on at the bookstore and purchased an IBM portable PC. I learned that portable can be a very subjective term. This monster was the size of a suitcase and twice as heavy. It had no hard drive, only a 360K 5-inch floppy drive, and a built-in 6-inch amber monochrome monitor. In those days, IBM shipped every computer with full documentation, which in this case included a DOS operating manual, a basic programming language manual, and floppy disks. Once I found the on switch, it booted up in the basic interpreter screen and the cursor began mocking me. I opened the basic programming manual to the first page, which fortunately happened to explain a basic command called beep. So I typed in the letters B-E-E-P and pressed the return key. I will never forget my excitement as I heard a distinctive beep sound come from its little speaker stuck to the side of its humming power supply. My eyes widened at this unexpected epiphany. You can tell it to do stuff. I began experimenting with other commands, if-then statements, go-to statements, and for-next loops. My mind raced with excitement as the possibilities with this machine suddenly seemed endless. Before long, I was drawing geographical objects on the screen. I would erase and redraw them so as to create the illusion of things flying around in space. For no reason, I began writing my first big program, a spaceship game. It would be considered amazingly simplistic by today's standards, but in the early 80s, the state of the industry was a black-and-white 2D ping-pong ball bouncing back and forth between line paddles. I began reading computer hobbyist magazines to pick up coding tips. I even figured out how to install more memory and a second floppy drive so I could compile my code without having to laboriously switch floppy disks dozens of times. Let's be honest, my code was horrible. If I had had even a rudimentary understanding of calculus at the time, I could have replaced pages of if-then statements with a single equation. But it worked, and it was really fun to play. So I spent my days reading Nietzsche and Bonhoeffer and translating manuscripts. But in truth, I couldn't wait to get back to my room and to the world I was creating on my little amber screen. In those days, we called open-source programs shareware which was comprised mostly of games and simple utility programs. I decided to send my game into one of the computer hobbyist magazine publishers for review. 
A few weeks later, I received a letter in the mail. I will never forget my second computer epiphany as I read the letter. They wanted to include my program on one of the shareware floppy disks that were distributed inside their magazine, and they were willing to pay me for it. My eyes widened again. You can make money doing this? As soon as the semester was over, I enrolled at North Carolina State University. My goal was to complete a master's degree in information science, but I had a lot of remedial math and science classes to make up. Although it was difficult, it was very refreshing to see right and wrong answers on test, rather than just essay questions regarding the conflicting opinions of others. I was making ends meet by writing simple programs for small local businesses. I developed several custom point-of-sale and inventory control applications. At that time, an information technology solution was very comprehensive. I would write the code, build the computers from mail-ordered parts, and even set up the local area network before training the staff and providing them with ongoing support. I read a lot of manuals. The great thing in those days was that you didn't have to know much to look like a real genius because very few people even owned a computer or understood software's potential for transforming their business. By the end of my second year at NCSU, I had invoiced over a million dollars and found myself predominantly hiring other students to do most of the work. I rented some space in a small strip mall and started a computer store. A year later, at six million in revenue and 27 employees, I dropped out of my third year at NCSU, thinking it was better to make payroll than to do homework assignments. I sold my computer store and began working with a friend to build a project-based software-only development company. Computer hardware margins were heading south, but the client-server computing model was in full swing. Companies were moving applications off their mainframes and onto more cost-effective and user-friendly personal computers. Over the next few years, I sold, designed, and managed literally hundreds of custom software development projects, predominantly for Fortune 1000 companies. My teams developed the very first custom banking application for BB&T and a massive admissions system for Duke University. We wrote the equivalent of Salesforce.com at least six times for different clients. You think it would have occurred to me that there was a product to be made here, but when you are in a services mindset, it is very hard to think beyond the next project. I did not appreciate it at the time, but I now realize how this services-based company exposed me to almost every industry and aspect of business, from manufacturing lines and Salesforce automation to Part 11 compliant pharmaceutical document tracking, we were cranking out the code as fast as we could go. In a few short years, we had grown to nearly 200 employees. Although custom projects were fun and lucrative, I did slowly begin to realize what all small services-based companies learn. If I were to ever stop working as hard as I was working, the revenue would dry up. The companies that could scale up quickly and get huge exit multiples were the ones with intellectual property, i.e. products. It became clear to me that I needed to stop developing software for hire and start building my own products. Fortunately, working daily with dozens of chief information officers and IT managers had put me in a good position to recognize which new software product offerings might have the most potential and demand. I spent the next few decades founding software product companies, 
Each of the startups I founded was in a different industry. From human resources to healthcare to education, I love designing transformational software to solve business problems. I was utterly fascinated by how unique each market segment and sales cycle was. Business for me was like an enjoyable puzzle. At first, I thought that all I had to do was design products that would create the right value propositions to solve the most painful problems I could discover. There was so much more I needed to know about business, people, and myself. Unfortunately, I wasn't a great listener, so I had to learn most of my lessons the hard way. Starting companies is not for the faint of heart. No matter how much you love what you do, constantly working 12 and 15 hour days will take a toll on you. When I sold my last company, I promised my wonderful and patient wife that I would never again start my own venture. Throughout my career, no matter how busy I was with my own ventures, I tried to always take the time to speak with new entrepreneurs seeking advice. I saw it as my duty and something that was owed because of those who had helped me along the way. So when I retired from starting my own ventures, I began to focus all of my energy on mentoring young entrepreneurs. Local entrepreneurs came to know me as the advisor who consulted for merely a coffee or beer. It is not an exaggeration to say that literally hundreds of entrepreneurs have sat on my back deck, overlooking my lake, while discussing their go-to market strategy, staffing problems, and other startup issues. Although every venture is unique, I found myself giving certain advice over and over again and hearing back how beneficial it was. I encapsulated some of this guidance into a short document to share with new entrepreneurs, mainly as a time saver. It really surprised me how popular that document became as entrepreneurs began sharing it with each other and discussing it among themselves. Several entrepreneurs, angel investors, and venture capitalists have encouraged me to expand on that document and make it available to a wider audience. This book is my effort to shortcut your learning process as an entrepreneur. If you have the time and money to complete an MBA, I am sure that you would learn a lot more than I can communicate here. But if you do not, then you may find this book a very practical summary of what I found most important when starting a venture. If you already have an MBA or business experience, you may still find what I have to say very practical. In my experience, it's not the stuff we don't know that screws us up in life, but all the stuff we did learn, but yet somehow forgot to implement. I specifically focus on software business-to-business, B2B startups, but most of this book is applicable to business-to-consumer, B2C, and non-software-related ventures as well. Unlike most professions that require you to wear only one hat really well, successful entrepreneurship dictates that you wear multiple hats all reasonably well. In fact, your typical day will be a flurry of putting on and taking off your diverse hats, each encompassing a role you must fulfill in order for your startup to not only survive, but also thrive. Depending on your strengths and personality, you will gravitate towards and feel more comfortable with some hats than others, but ignore any of them at your peril. You will notice that each of the hats discussed here can also be viewed as a stage or step in building your startup. Each step rests upon and is dependent on the ones that came before it. In a startup, you rarely have the luxury of choosing which hats you want to wear or spend time under. 
you have to wear them all, and to shortchange one hat is likely to sabotage them all. If you are an aspiring entrepreneur, living by your wits, taking the leaps of faith, dodging the bullets, and clenching relentlessly to your dream, then I want you to know that my respect for you is immense, and this book is truly all about you. I think people who aren't a little scared every morning when they wake up are at best unchallenged, and at worst, not fully alive. Whether you succeed or fail is not nearly as important as the fact that you experience the journey. If you embrace it, your venture will shape you, even as you are shaping it. I hope this book serves you well on your journey. That concludes this chapter of The Startup Hats, Master the Many Roles of the Entrepreneur by David Gardner. If you like this chapter and you can't wait for the next one in a week, you can download and listen to the entire audiobook on Audible. Startup Hats is sponsored by Forrest Firm, a full-service law firm and certified B Corporation with offices across North Carolina and clients around the globe. The Forrest Firm mission is to provide legal services that consistently exceed client expectations, create healthy, sustainable work environments for professionals, and positively impact the communities where they live and work. For more information, head on over to ForrestFirm.com. For more information on the work that David Gardner is doing with his venture capital firm, visit CoFoundersCapital.com. Startup Hats is a production of EarFluence and read by me, Dave Clark. You can find more information on EarFluence podcast at EarFluence.com.